be honest, be honest now. You never thought you'd see Willie today, did you? How many are Willie Nelson fans? Uh, we're not going to hold that against you. No, I, I am a fan of his too. And I thought he wrote this song. But in fact, he did not write this song. But in 1983, this song, sung by Willie Nelson and his band, won three Grammys. It won a Grammy for the song Writers. It won a Grammy for the best country western song of the year. And it also won a Grammy for the best song in all genres. So a great song, and uh, I like it. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you today that your word says we're to rejoice and be glad in this day. Lord, we have much to be happy and rejoicing over today. We rejoice in our salvation. We rejoice in your goodness and your mercy and your love and your grace. We rejoice, Lord, that we have such a wonderful worship band. We rejoice that we have this beautiful facility. We rejoice over the new zone building. We rejoice that people came today, Lord, to be with each other and to be in your presence. Lord, we thank you for the beautiful weather you've given us. Now, Lord, help us to be attentive for the next few moments. And I pray you'd bless the words that you've given me and anoint me in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. For you that may be new here today, I'm one of the pastors on staff, and we are very glad and thankful that you're here with us. The seven deadly sins that make up our series, Breaking Bad, they're not found as a list anywhere in the Bible. Early church fathers compiled the list of seven sins, which they felt were the most harmful and deadly to a person's soul. They believed these were the sins which most other sins stem from. The list was to be used as a tool for self-examination so that a person could confess their sin and ask God's forgiveness and help in overcoming that particular sin. We've already looked at pride, greed, envy, and last week, anger. So we've covered four of them. Today we examine sin number five, the sin of lust. Webster's Dictionary says lust is a strong feeling of sexual desire. In our culture, a lot of people would say, well, you know, it's really not that big a deal. You know, God kind of made all of us this way, and all men battle with lust. And I want to be real clear that this isn't just a man issue. This is a human being issue. Though men may be more easily tempted to lust, many women also struggle with this sin. A survey was done by Today's Christian Woman magazine, and they found that about one in six women, including Christian women, struggle with an addiction to pornography. Now, when it comes to men, some studies claim that at least half of all men, one out of two, whether they're Christians or non-Christians, half of all men struggle with pornography and other lustful issues in their life. Did you know that the porn industry is a 
$10 billion a year business in America? Did you know that there are over 4 million internet porn sites? That blew me away when I saw that. Did you know that the average age of a child's first internet exposure to porn is 11 years old? It's not just the internet that's a problem. Researchers say that two-thirds of all television shows have some sexual content, ranging from talking about sex to depictions of sexual behavior. I'm especially concerned this morning for our children and our grandchildren, and I know you are too. Access has never been greater or easier to what feeds our sexual lust. With any mobile device or computer, you can get into anything and everything that you would ever want to or never want to get into. This is because I believe there's more tolerance for sexual lust in America than ever before. What's acceptable on TV would have been considered shameful and would have been censored a few short years ago. Now, I'm dating myself, but when I watch reruns of Little House on the Prairie and the Waltons, I'm always amazed at how morally clean those shows were. And in their day, they were some of the most watched shows on television with that programming of wholesomeness and purity, family life. The standard of what is accepted today in all forms of media has sunk to new lows. Some would say, that's okay, you know, come on now, it doesn't hurt anyone. And that seems to be the standard rationalization of so many people. They justify and rationalize their sin by saying, I'm not hurting anybody, so why make a big deal of it? For the record, let me say that if you're not a follower of Christ today, you're not a Christian, then you're off the hook this morning. So what we're going to look at and what we're going to teach about doesn't apply to you Because you're not supposed to live by the standards taught according to God's Word, the Bible. Now here's the irony. So many non-Christians do a much better job living by the book than those who profess to be followers of Christ. Lust has a powerful hold on people from all walks of life. While running for the office of the President of the United States some years back, Jimmy Carter received intense scrutiny for admitting this to a reporter. He said, I've looked on a lot of women with lust. He said, I've committed adultery in my heart many times. Now, I was thinking a statement like that today would probably get a politician a 10-point bump in the poll ratings. Confucius, the founder of Buddhism, said this, 
of all the worldly passions, lust is the most intense. All other passions seem to follow in its train. A little girl was talking to her grandmother, and she asked her grandmother how old she was. And her grandmother replied, well, you know, you're not supposed to ask that question because grown-ups don't like to tell their age. Well, she took another angle. She said, oh, Grandma, how much do you weigh? You shouldn't ask people how much they weigh, Grandma said. It's not polite. The next day, the girl was back with Grandmother, and she had a smile on her face, and she said, Guess what, Grandma? I know how old you are. You're 62. He says, I know how much you weigh. You weigh 150 pounds. You know, Grandma was surprised, and uh, she said, how do you know all that? The girl said, you left your driver's license on the table, and I read it. And she said, you know what else I found out, Grandma? It says, I saw that you got an F in sex. I looked at my driver's license after I saw that joke, and they don't have that anymore. When it comes to sexual lust, many of us are failing because we are naive to the power of lust. You know, we treat it like some rubber carnival snake when, in fact, it's a king cobra. And unless we gain a biblical understanding of its power, it will inflict a great deal of pain on us and those we love. Just as we must kill the cobra before it would kill us, the Bible tells us this. Paul says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Many of us here don't take the battle for our hearts and minds seriously. We grossly underestimate the reality and power of Satan, not realizing that he's out to destroy our families, he's out to destroy our Christian witness, and he's out to destroy our lives. He will use any of the things that Paul lists here in this verse as well as a host of other things, to take us out, my dear friends. And I'm saying to you, I'm saying to myself, we must be vigilant, and we must stand strong, and we must seek the power of the Holy Spirit in the fight in which we're engaged. When you think of the Old Testament character David, one of two events probably comes to your mind. You got him in your mind? You know who King David was from Bible school and, and uh, Sunday school? What would be one of those two events? Anybody want to tell me right quick? Okay, what's another one? Goliath. You got the two I was thinking of. When David met Goliath on that battlefield, we saw his greatest victory. In the story of Bathsheba, we see his greatest defeat. He was defeated by a giant, 
more powerful than Goliath could ever hope to be. The giant that took out David wants to take you and me out too. If we want to understand the nature of the giant that lived in David's heart, we need to look back to 2 Samuel chapter 5. There we're told that God had blessed David and had chosen David to be Israel's king. And then we read this in verse 13. After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. David is a mighty king. And in the culture and time in which he lived, having multiple wives was not illegal. And surely no one would care if King David indulged his appetite for women by taking many wives and many concubines. And just so you know, a concubine is a woman who voluntarily enslaves and sells herself to a man primarily for his sexual pleasure. Concubines possess many of the same rights as legitimate wives, but without the same respect. Duh. Maybe no one in Israel cared about what the king did, but God cared. What David did was in direct contradiction to God's word in Deuteronomy chapter 17. There we learn that Israel's king was not supposed to accumulate and have multiple wives. It may have been legal to have many wives, but it wasn't moral for the king to do so. Because it disregarded what God had to say about it. We've got to remember that it's legal for us in our culture and our society, and if it is, it may not always be moral and permissible for us as followers of God. There are many legal ways to feed lust in America. They are socially acceptable ways. But God is not fooled. Any of us can start off by doing nothing illegal, nothing that others can see, nothing that society is embarrassed by, but it's a slippery slope of compromise which will eventually destroy our lives. David had a giant of lust in his heart, and he sought to satisfy his sexual desires by having many women at his disposal. We find the story of David and Bathsheba in 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, keep that phrase in your mind, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. On this day, King David was at home taking a nap while his army was off at war. 
David was in bed snoozing when he should have been in the battle leading his men. He wakes up from his nap, nothing to do, time on his hands. You know what the old English proverb says, an idle mind is the, is the devil's workshop. And the devil was getting ready to do some work on David. David begins to walk on the flat roof of his palace, which was situated high above all the surrounding homes. And he stops in his tracks by something he sees. A woman is taking a bath with the shades up. And the Bible says this woman had unusual beauty. She's a knockout. And there she is with an eyesight in her birthday suit. Nothing left to the imagination. Now remember, David had many wives and he had many concubines that he could have gone to at that moment. But when he saw Bathsheba, you know, his eyes popped out, his tongue fell to the floor. There was only one thing on his mind, and it wasn't going to Disney World. How things would have been different for David and for his family if he would have said something like this, Lord, I could use your help right now. I'm struggling with some lustful thoughts, and I need your power, God, to say no and turn away. David would have faced the temptation. The woman would have still been there. He would have overcome the temptation with God's help, and he would not have sinned. He wouldn't have had his dirty laundry spread across the pages of the Bible. We wouldn't be talking about it this morning. One of the things we learn here is that temptation isn't sin. Let me repeat. Temptation isn't sin. It's not sinful to have temptations or to be tempted. Everyone is tempted, both Christian and non-Christian. Even Jesus was tempted. Here's something that we need to believe deep in our hearts. We can say no to temptation if we want to. Ah, if we want to. Saying no to temptation will help us keep the right distance from sin and will provide the margin of safety that we need. A wealthy couple was interviewing applicants to be their chauffeur. And three men were left in the process. And they took these three men up to the balcony of their palatial home, overlooking a brick wall that ran across by the driveway. And the wife asked the men this question. How close do you think you could come to that wall without scratching our Rolls Royce? The first man felt he could drive within one foot of the wall without damaging the car. The second man thought about it. He said, I think I could get within six inches of the wall. The third man said, I don't know how close I could come to the wall without damaging the rolls. 
He said, instead, I would try to stay as far away from that wall as I could. You see, this man had a different focus than the other two. He understood that true skill in driving is not based so much on the ability to steer the car to a narrow miss as on the ability to keep a wide margin of safety. Sadly, King David wasn't concerned with a wide margin of safety. David stepped over the line when his look became a stare. And when his glance by an accident became a look on purpose. Another Old Testament character by the name of Job said this to help him keep a wide margin of safety in his life. Job said, I made a covenant with my eyes. Just his eyes. I'm only responsible for my eyes, Job said. Just like I'm only responsible for my eyes. Job said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look with what? With lust at a young woman. Job was building a margin of safety into his life. No doubt David began to fantasize. He began to think about how to gratify his lust. He began to ignore his conscience. He began to justify his choices. Someone has said, every outward act of sin is preceded by an inward act of choice. David's thoughts were consumed with the neighbor lady and her beauty. And he couldn't get her out of his mind. About this time, King David could have grabbed his harp. He could have sung harmony with Willie and Greg. On, you were always on my mind, Bathsheba. Here it is, my friends. Anytime a person, whether it's you or me or King David, begins to dwell in their mind on the possibility of sin, they are well on their way to committing sin. The story goes on like this. He sent someone to find out who she was. And he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. When he asked about Bathsheba, he's told that she's the wife of a loyal soldier in his army. And she's also the daughter of a trusted advisor. That information should have been enough to cause David to stop the course of action he was pursuing. But his lust drove him on. Lust always ensnares the mind first. And then it erases all reason and right thinking. People in the grip of lust often do things that they would never do 
under normal circumstances. David knew better. He's 50 years old. He's been the king of Israel 20 years. He's a mighty warrior. He's a man of God who wrote 75 of the 150 Psalms. But at this moment, he reveals the truth that like all human beings, he's a sinner with feet of clay. His lust drives him to commit adultery with another man's wife. He dishonors Bathsheba. He dishonors her husband Uriah. And most of all, David dishonors his God. David has forgotten his relationship with God. The giant of lust in his heart has blinded him to the point where David has become a practical atheist. He's living as if there was no God. And such is the power of sin in anyone's life. David forgot God. And if we give in to sin, we'll forget God. When the giant of lust rises up in your heart, it will block your view of God the Father. And when that happens, you're going to find yourself doing things that you never thought possible. No one is immune. A few weeks ago, I read that 400 pastors in America, I don't know what denomination they were in, I don't care, but 400 pastors said in America they had been outed in the Ashley Madison scandal. And that was a powerful reminder to me that no matter who we are, it's important that we defeat lust and all sin when it first tries to gain a foothold in our lives. The problem that David experienced with lust is the same one that we will face with our lust. David fed his giant, and his giant just wanted more. It spread like a cancer until it made a mess of David's life. And what a mess it was. Daytime TV has nothing on this story. This is as sordid and conniving as any soap opera could ever hope to be. And I want to show you three things that the giant of lust did to David and it can do to you and me. Later, when Bathsheba discovered she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. First thing is lust led him down a deceptive path. When David got this news from Bathsheba, he must have gone into panic mode. And he began to devise a plan to cover up his sin. David orders Bathsheba's husband Uriah home from the battle on the pretense of needing to hear some news from the war. David then tells Uriah, I want you to go home, I want you to see your wife, because David thinks Uriah will have sex with his wife, and then everyone will believe that the child in Bathsheba's womb was Uriah's child. But Uriah is a man of integrity and honor, and a leader who cares more about his men than his own pleasure and comfort. Uriah reasoned that since his men didn't get to spend the night with their wives, neither would he. So David tried another tactic. David invited him to dinner and he got him drunk. 
But even then he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. Again, he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. David's attempt at cover-up had failed, just like most cover-ups. Somebody always finds out. David is using deception to try and cover up his sins. And instead of stepping up and, and confessing his sins to God and dealing with the consequences, David tries to hide like a coward. When people find themselves under the grip and control of sin, lust included, all the seven deadly sins, whatever they may be, those people try everything they can to keep their sin covered and hidden. God's way is just the opposite. His way has always been to openness, honesty, and confession. Get it out there. Let it be aired out. The Proverbs 28.13 says this, People who conceal their sins will not what? Prosper. But if they confess and turn from them, they will receive, what will they receive from God? Mercy. Mercy. I want mercy. I want mercy. The second thing the giant of lust did to David was to lead him down a deepening path. It's one of the laws of sin. I'm sure you've got it written down somewhere, the laws of sin. Here's one to add to your list. One sin leads to another sin, which leads to another sin, and on and on and on and on. When deception didn't work, David had another idea. He's getting real smart here, isn't he? David made a plan to get Uriah killed on the battlefield. He won't go home and sleep with his wife and and make it look like she's going to have a baby by him. i got to take more drastic measures. He sends him back to war carrying his own death warrant. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. And you know, Uriah's not going to look at it. The letter instructed Joab, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is the fiercest, then pull back so that he will be killed. Put him out there in arm's way, pull back the defenses, then he'll be killed. Joab, the commander of the army, he carried out the king's orders. So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed, and then, along with several other Israelite soldiers. Not only Uriah, but there was collateral damage, other lives. His sin that began with the giant of lust in his life was leading David deeper and deeper down a path that's going to take him farther and farther away from the Lord. And this is how sin always works in our lives. Sin is never satisfied. But it will lead us along, taking us deeper down its path, tightening its grip on our hearts and our lives. My friends, hear me today. Don't be deceived by any sin that lives in your heart 
whether it's one of the seven deadly sins that we're going to discuss or any other sin out there. Don't be deceived by that sin. Sin will settle for nothing short of your total destruction. The final thing that lust did to David was to lead him down a devastating path. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace, and she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son. After Uriah is killed, Bathsheba fulfills the customary seven-day mourning period. King David takes her as a wife, along with his other seven wives that are mentioned by name in the Bible. So we know he had at least seven. And how many concubines, we don't know. And at this time, David doesn't show any remorse for what he's done. And he seems to have lost that sweet sensitivity to the Lord that marked his earlier days. Some of those writings in the book of Psalms. You see, sin has devastated his life. And there's no surprise there because this is what sin has done since the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. Sin will sear the conscience, making it easier and easier to commit more sin until a person's life is devastated and destroyed. Sin's going to dull a person's sensitivity to the Lord and His voice in your spirit through your conscience. You see, Satan never shows his cards. He never tells the truth about lust. Pastor Joseph Rogers wrote this. He said, lust will destroy your convictions. It will destroy your character and your connections. Lust will separate you from fellowship with God. Lust will separate you from your spouse and your kids. And lust will separate you from your friends and family. Satan never tells the truth about sin. But God does. In Ezekiel we read, The person who sins is the one who will die. Physical death and then spiritual death. Each of us, myself included, are being warned today to not let the sin of lust destroy and devastate our lives. It's a sad place to leave, King David. The last part of verse 27 hangs over this chapter like a black cloud. It says, But the Lord was displeased with what David had done. I believe that was an understatement. But the story isn't over. In truth, it's merely beginning. God doesn't leave those He loves in the grip of sin. God has ways of bringing them to their senses and of setting them free. God loved David. He called him a man after his own heart in Acts chapter 13. And if you will read 2 Samuel chapter 12, 
And if you'll read Psalm 51, you will see that David repents of his sin. And David is restored to fellowship with God. I read a story about a family who lived in Northern California several years ago who kept a mountain lion as a pet. They found it as a little baby, and even though it was illegal to take it home, they did, and and it lived with the family for many years. One day, tragically, the mountain lion turned on one of their children, and they killed their daughter, the, the mountain lion. And all those years, the family thought the lion was domesticated, and they could refused to believe that it was a wild animal. And they got to thinking, lust is like that mountain lion cub. It may seem so innocent, but it's going to grow. It's going to resist being domesticated. It's going to resist being controlled. And it will end up someday devouring anyone who allows it into their lives. The sin of lust is sin. Whether it's committed by the king of Israel, whether it's committed by the president of the United States, whether it's committed by you or me. Sin is sin, no matter what shape or form you find it. I am as prone to fail as David was. I had in my notes we, but I'm not going to speak for you. I am as prone to fail as David was. And I need to be careful, lest I fall as Paul warns. If you, David Blackburn, think you are standing strong, be careful not to fall. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. Here are four basic things that each of us can do to defeat lust in our lives. Number one, accountability. Who holds you accountable? Do you have a person of the same sex that you answer to regularly for for your actions and who will ask you the hard questions about this issue? Everyone needs an accountability partner in the battle with lust. Number two, cut off the sources. This goes right along with accountability. Do you have appropriate filter blockers on your media devices? or on your computer, that will help you in the fight. There are four million internet porn sites out there. We must get rid of magazines, books, DVDs, pictures, certain cable channels, and on and on, that make it easier for us to fall into lust. I like what Greg Laurie, a pastor in Southern California, said. He said, you don't feed your lust, you starve it. He said, we have to cut off the sources and stay away from anything that would encourage immoral living. Number three, count the cost. 
Take some time. Count the cost. Ask yourself these questions. Is it worth the guilt and emotional turmoil you may face? What about those 400 pastors? Is it worth the shame and damage to your reputation and your Christian witness? Is it worth getting divorced or estranged from your spouse? Is it worth hurting the ones you love the most in this life? And number four, keep your walk with God fresh and growing. The Holy Spirit is at work in all Christ's followers. But the Bible says we can choose to kind of quench that spirit. It's like throwing water on a fire. We can, you know, we can shut ourselves up from the power of the Holy Spirit. And you must make sure, as I must make sure, that my Christianity isn't just some nominal and lukewarm Sunday morning one-hour thing, but it's growing and maturing as God shows me how to do that. Here's the bottom line. While lust makes great promises, it can only deliver a lie. And lust is no lightweight matter. It's a real problem in our culture a real problem in our communities, our churches, and in our homes. Many followers of Christ are bound by the giant of lust. And they don't have any hope that they'll ever be free. It's just a part of who they are, they think. But hear me straight up this morning. As your brother in Christ, lust doesn't have to take you out. It doesn't have to take you out. Lust can go down just like Goliath did. Lust can be defeated. We must resist the lies of Satan. We must call out to God to help us overcome lust. You may need to go to a Christian counselor. And you can talk to me if if you need some direction in that. I can help you. Don't give up. Don't give in to this deadly sin that wants to, next screen, ravage your heart, brutalize your soul. Don't give in. I believe this last verse is the best reminder of hope that we can close with today. We need hope. If we're bound by any sin in our life, we need hope. The hope that only God can bring to us this morning. And I want us to say it three times. We're going to do it this way. When I say go. The first time, only the ladies are going to say it. It's a very short verse. The second time, it will be just us men say it. This is a human being problem. Sin is a human being problem. And the third time, we're going to say it together collectively. Okay? Ladies, will you say it for us, please? Men, let's say it together. I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. And then all together as the body of Christ here at Faith Fellowship, I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. Let's pray together. Lord, we believe that verse... Even if this morning we are bound by a sin. Maybe it's one of these seven deadly sins. Maybe it's a sin we'll not even get to in this series. 
But Lord, we believe that we can resist sin. I can do all things, Paul said. I can choose not to be involved in lustful activity. I can choose to turn away from those things, the computer, the media devices, the DVDs, the books, whatever it might be. Lord, you can speak to our hearts. You can empower us by your Holy Spirit. And from this day forward, we can engage in the fight knowing that with Christ, we can win. Lord, I thank you that Jesus Christ's death on the cross was sufficient to cover every sin. There's no sin that's worse than another. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in this place today that is struggling in this area, that they'll know that going to someone as an accountability partner, getting it out in the open, confessing it, letting you forgive them and bring the mercy that you can bring to their lives, Lord, that's the beginning. That's the start. And we thank you for it. And Lord, as the band plays this beautiful song, Sweet Surrender, and as we sit here, Lord, let us not sit here as spectators, but let us close our eyes and open our hearts to the sweet surrendering of the Holy Spirit to come and minister to us and to begin the process of setting us free and releasing us from all bondage and all sin. And Lord, after that song is over, There'll be those up front who want to pray for others in this building. And I know the temptation will think, well, you know, if I'm dealing with something, they'll think I'm dealing with lust. I don't want anybody to, Lord, let them put it out of their mind, whatever it might be. Maybe they're praying for someone else across the country. But, Lord, we believe in prayer in this place. We believe in not only corporate prayer but individual prayer. We believe that brothers and sisters in Christ should pray for one another. So I pray that someone will just come out of their seat. They'll put aside anybody thinking whatever they might think about them. This is a safe place, Lord. There's no safer place in Madison County right now this morning than this place now. And Lord, we pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to be here in a sweet way as we surrender our hearts and lives to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.